0: Um, let's pray, and we'll look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you uh, for this time that we have here together today to, to study your word. Lord, we ask that your spirit would, would help us to understand what it's saying, um, protect our minds from thinking it says something it doesn't say. Lord, we thank you for the blood of Christ, uh, that we stand complete in him alone. Lord, I pray um, that you would help us to understand um, how our how our works, how our um, behavior uh, relates to our salvation. Um, Lord, guard us from thinking that our works save us or um, foster um, any sort of um, salvation with you. We thank you that Christ paid it all. And Lord, we pray that as we Look at this text. Lord, we ask that you would help us along the way. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. To sum up, all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing For you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We, Lord, we ask you that you would help us now. Lord, may the work live to us. May you speak to us each individually. Lord, we are in different places of our life and our journey with you. And so, Lord, we ask that your word would speak to us directly um, as your children. Convict us, guide us, lead us along the way. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. So this passage is, is uh, studying it for the last week or so, it, some concerns come up with the passage, not not with the passage, it's the Word of God, there's nothing to be concerned about with the Bible, My, the concern is is with us and our understanding of it. Um, it's so easy for us to fall into the trap of good works or good deeds and, and thinking that our relationship with God and salvation or in relationship is sort of is that if we want to be right with God, that means that we have to do good things and good deeds and live a certain way. And, and so if we, since we're just looking at this text today, it would be very easy to sort of to misunderstand this text. But as we've been going through First Peter and coming to know the, the Apostle Peter, He's not saying this has anything to do with works. This whole letter, First Peter, we know that it was written to Christians uh, in the early church. If we were to look at a few verses sort of leading into this passage, we would see First Peter chapter 1, verse 6, which says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. So as Peter starts the letter, he, we see that he's writing to those who have come to faith in Christ, writing to those people, to us who are, who are believers, he says, listen, you're, you stand in him, you're born again, not because of your good works, but because of God's great mercy. And mercy is, is withholding something that we deserve. In this case, our sin, we deserve God's wrath. And Peter writes... Praise be God and, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who because of His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again. Continuing down to verse 9, it says that you are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, which we just sang. That our relationship with God our, 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 is contingent based on what Christ did, not on what we did. We are sinners saved by grace. It's through faith, believing in what Christ did that makes us right with God, not our works. In verse 9 of chapter 2, we see that the recipients, they're, they're referred to, we are referred to as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light. For you were once, were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And he sort of wraps up this this theological doctrinal position of the truth of of who we are in Christ. And he transitions in verse 11, which is, over the last few weeks, has sort of been the governing passage in looking at the verses. Today's sort of the the bookend on on the other side of things. And in verse 11, he transfers from, he moves from, I should say, "...from you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation." So after all of this truth about who we are in Christ, he, he pleads with the believers. He urges them as aliens and strangers. For those who are Christians in this world, we think differently. We behave differently. We're called to live differently than the philosophy of the world. And he says, I urge you to abstain from the fleshly desires of Within that wage war against the soul. In verse 2, he says, Keep your behavior excellent amongst the Gentiles, so that as they revile you, as they harass you, as they tease you, as they scorn you, they're going to observe how you respond. And as they observe you responding, it says at the very end, they may glorify God in the day of visitation. Our behavior, how we respond in certain circumstances, If we follow what Peter says, it allows the gospel to sort of bubble up in our lives and to be put on display. In examples of how to live, the the whole theme of the last two weeks has been the word submission, which is a word that we in our culture don't like. But he begins in verse 13, submit yourself for the Lord's sake. Um, that, that, That our heart of submission, we're doing it to please God. And he, he mentions the authorities that we're to submit ourselves to the governing authorities. We're to submit ourselves to our masters or employers. I think we can make the stretch. In chapter 3, verse 1, he goes in to speak on within the context of marriage. So he addresses the wives and then he addresses the husbands. In all of this, it's the, the heart of submitting to God in these circumstances, which may be less than ideal. And as we submit ourselves to God in these situations, what it does is it forces us to to move towards dependency and trust in God during these circumstances. And so as he ends verse 8, where we're at today, he says, To sum up all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. I want to work really hard to try to make this clear. It would be very easy to read those things as a verb, meaning that these are things as followers of Christ, that we're to do these certain certain things, that that we're to be, like, to, to do whatever harmonious is, to be making peace, to be how you function with your words, with your behavior, with your actions. Um... Like sympathy, brotherly kind hearted humble in spirit that it 's easy to view these as verbs i 'm going to try to explain this in a second i 'm struggling in my mind anytime the gunner gives a grammar lesson we 're in trouble <laughs> um, in the original language these words are not verbs they're they 're adverbs um, i don 't know if it 's a game, but I know that i 've been asked in situations like i don 't know if it 's like like a birthday party or whatever Facebook status or something when it says list one adverb that describes me. Right? Like, and and I always, then I have to go, what's an adverb? I gotta look up an adverb. So it's like a, it's, it's a, it's sort of a description of sort of like a characteristic. It's not something that you do. The verb in this whole passage is be like to exist. Um, so, so we're told that deep within ourselves, we're supposed to be harmonious, to be sympathetic, to be brotherly, to be kind-hearted, to be humble in spirit. These are not actions. I tend to think of these, if it was, say, hey, do the adverb game for yourself, Gunner. What I would say is, Gunner weed wax. Gunner takes out the trash. Gunner feeds the dogs. Gunner washes the car once every three years. So these are all descriptions of actions that I would do. But this is not at all what Peter is instructing. What he's instructing is, is that we are to be, that, that within us, it's not an action. It's sort of an attitude, a belie- uh, not even a belief, but, but an attitude of our hearts that we would hold these sort of characteristics to be true within our Deep within. But it's so easy to take these and to think that we're supposed to do this, do this, do this. And if I don't do this, then God's not happy with me. And so our whole life sort of leaves relationship with the Creator through Christ. And it moves into good works. Ultimately creating religion. Creating legalism. Creating uh, people who judge one another because they want to finish the race better than the next guy. And this is not at all what it's saying. Where he moves from this verse 8, if the word before that summarized the last few weeks was submission, the new word for the next few weeks is suffering. How do we respond to suffering? The church during this time was either Already under the wrath of Nero, or Nero's wrath was coming to them. Many in the early church were executed for their faith in Christ. Very similar, um, but a whole lot worse than what's happening in northern Iraq and Mosul with ISIS. Um, The Christians there that are being executed and killed for their faith. Very similar situation, except over a much broader global perspective um, during the time of Peter's writing. And so he moves under suffering to verse 15 of chapter 3. We see the movement here. He says, but sanctify Christ Jesus in your hearts. Always be ready uh, to make a defense to anyone who asks you. That that well-known verse. So so the attitude here, the idea is that in Christ, we're new creatures. that, That we've been sealed with the Spirit. That we change from the inside out. That our heart is not the same as it was. And Peter wants us uh, to harness sort of the, the fruit of the Spirit, which we'll look at, that, that God's fruit, this new nature within us, would be transformed. And then through that transformation, our actions will change. But the focus isn't on the action. The focus, for the most part, is on the change of heart, which will lead to change of action. It's, it, some people say, "Gunner, this is semantics. And from the outside looking in, it might seem like semantics, but but it's it's a, it's all the difference in the world if you have a changed heart or if you're trying and things are bubbling out in response to what Christ has done for you. To you're trying to do all of these things to earn your salvation or earn peace with God, you'll never do it. It's all. It means everything that we understand this. And so I'm going to try very. Um, I'm going I'm going to do the best I can, which might not be good enough. You know that's a. There's those sayings, those motivational. We used to use them in the SEAL teams, and the motivational posters. Failure when you give it your best, and your best just isn't good enough. <laughs> so, so hopefully that won't happen today. So Peter, leading from this, this idea of submission, he says to sum up the, the end of all of this that we as followers of Christ that that we would be that that, that deep within us that 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 we would have that we be harmonious sympathetic brotherly kind hearted humble in spirit harmonious is a word that literally means of the same mind and and so that we would think the same that we would have the same like philosophy of aim the same aim of direction where we're going this isn't to say um uniformity in the military, that was a big thing. You send a bunch of people to boot camp. When they show up, they all sort of look different. Then they get their heads shaved. And then by you know the end of boot camp, it's like you can't tell any of them apart. They all just look the same. That's uniformity. That's not the church. See, see Unity is very different than uniformity. The, the unity that we're striving for, if you were to follow this word in other places in the New Testament... We would want to have the mind of Christ that we in our own gifting and our own talents and our own backgrounds and our our place on earth and our time, we each are different. It's beautiful. We're all different. But we all want to attain harmony with the mind of Christ that even though we're different, we're united together through the aim of the greater cause. And so here as the church was under attack, Peter wanted this for them to be harmonious, that as the world was attacking them, that they would be united in aim and mission because they understood it was greater than their own lives. It was about the gospel going forth to the world. It reminds me of Jesus's prayer, what's referred to as the high priestly prayer in John 17. On the night which Jesus was betrayed, he gathers his disciples together, the 11 who are left, and he begins to to pray over them, for them. And in verse 20, he shifts his prayer towards them to believers that would come to faith through their ministry and the church that is to come. And in John 17, verse 20, this is what Jesus prays. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. That these are the 11 disciples that he is there with in the upper room. But for those also who believe in me through their word, that very well could be us. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. That Jesus' prayer at the very end wasn't that, you know, mega churches would sprout up, that thousands of people would come to follow him, Many would follow Christ, obviously. Over the but, but what he prayed is that there would be unity amongst his followers. And if there was unity amongst a bunch of sinners, that would display to the world that they indeed are followers of God, that they are his children, that we are his children. He moves on to sympathetic. This is Caring deeply about the needs, joys, and sorrows of others. I'm trying to explain what sympathy is. Uh, sympathy can result in action. You have sympathy on somebody, so you do something for that individual. But remember, the character is, is deep within the heart. And so there are times in my life when I do well with sympathy. There are times when I fail. An example that came to me. Uh, for, for whatever reason, during the last service, was imagining that I stumbled across on the street. Um, well, I, the guy was laying over here in the last service, so I'm going to put him over here again. It just, it just is where my mind goes. Then I'm walking down the street, and I see a homeless guy, half drunk, obviously been in the world for years. Like, it's not like he's he, he's been there a short while. See, the non-sympathetic side of Gunner, who who rears his head quite a bit, working on it, none of us are perfect, would see the guy and think, man, that guy's made a bunch of horrible choices in his life. He deserves to be where he is. If he'd only not done those things that, you know, he wouldn't have found himself in this position. That's a bad example. Sympathetic Gunner, Gunner who's walking in the spirit, Uh, and none of this is even resulting in like, I can walk by and have all those thoughts about how this guy deserves to be on the street where he is, and I can be smiley Christian and say, oh, let's pray for that guy. Oh, we need to pray for him. We need to love him. I can say all of that stuff, but within me, (laughs) that's not what I'm thinking. Nobody wants to ignore. Can I get an amen? Have we all been there? (laughs) Um, Now, there are other times when I'm walking in the Spirit, and I see the guy, and I think, you know what? This guy's made a lot of poor choices. I can think all of the same stuff, but then there's a side of me that my heart just sort of breaks. They think, well, I'm looking at this guy in the gutter who's half drunk, missing all of his teeth, can't like, like I, he reeks, he's dirty, he's filthy. And my heart breaks like, yeah, he made these choices, but why did he make these choices? Was he like in an abusive like spot? Like when he was a kid? Like, I don't know what happened to him, where suddenly, how I view him, I see that, you know what, even though he's a wretched man on the street, that God, before the foundation of the world, created him. At some point in his life, he was born. And I've never seen a baby that was born, that there wasn't like a mom, regardless, even if the child was given up for adoption, that doesn't think this is the most beautiful beautiful thing in the world and to see that this guy who's on the street now is here but one day however many years before he was the joy to somebody's like like whoever not even if he was related you when babies come into the world strangers think that they're the most awesome things in the whole, like the whole universe and and to, to, to think that that's where he was as a child and now he's here Sympathy is like my heart breaks. There's great need. What can I do? Regardless of how I act on the outside, because some, like sometimes you just can't. Like you just. Can't. But but if deep within me that I have a sympathetic, like I think that that's what he's saying here is that we need to be sympathetic, like our character from within. He moves on to brotherly, and this is literally Philadelphia's where we get the we get the word Philadelphia from this um, phileo. This is brotherly love. There's a special sort of love amongst brothers and sisters in Christ that's hard to describe. See, we come here, we know each other, we have like, we're united through, you know, Valley Center, Escondido. We, we speak the same language. It's it's easy to sort of feel comfortable and to have love for one another. I've found that this brotherly love, this 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 attribute where I've seen it in my life is traveling outside of my comfort zone, going to places where they don't speak my language, they don't worship the same way, and yet I meet somebody, and the only thing that I'm able to communicate with them, even through a translator, is that they're my brother or sister in Christ. And there's something that like unites us. This is why I care, like the Mexico house building... A tremendous opportunity. I, I know you guys are afraid of safety. I know there, we are brilliant at coming up with excuses for why we shouldn't step out and do something. But there's something so special. The last time we went back, I think it was in January, and we built two houses. I happened to build a house where there was a young lady who she was probably in her mid-20s, she had a daughter that was my was Grace's age. Her husband was working and it didn't take long to come to realize that she was a Christian. And for those of you that know me like I really work hard at trying to speak Spanish. I've come a long way. I can but I'm not fluent. But being down there coming to understand that this lady was a believer for the house that we were making her, which is really like an 8 by 16 sh- structure of plywood that we plant on the ground with no plumbing, no electricity, nothing. And that she was my sister in Christ. There was this sort of this, this bond between our group and her and her family that we, we knew even though we were separated vastly by border, by language by economic standards, that here we were, and she was just so thankful that we were there uh, to serve her as building house, knowing that I would go back to my house that had running water. I'm not even going to mention that I have hot water. Like the fact that I have water on the inside, that I have a toilet in my house, that I, th- th- that I am so blessed. And to look at this lady who I have nothing in common with except Christ, and there was a deep, profound love by our members and this lady and her child because we are children of the King, that we both have come to accept Christ as Savior. We both have the same spirit within us. And there's something just deep within that it's hard to explain. And Peter says, this is what we're to be, this brotherly love deep within. He moves on to kind-hearted. Kind-hearted is very similar to sympathetic. Sympathetic. Very hard to explain the difference, where if sympathy is caring deeply uh, for the needs, the joys, the sorrows for another individual, kind-hearted carries with it um, a a different sort of attitude. If you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4.32, um, this word is used there, and I think it helps sort of express the contrast. And I'll go back to my wonderful illustration of the homeless guy that's over here that we have sympathy for. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, we read, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. And I believe that the word there in the Greek is tender hearted. It might be kind, I forget from my memory, but that's not the point. You can go back to Peter. The, the slight difference, I think, between sympathetic and kind hearted is coming across this guy, having sympathy. Feeling pain for however he ended here, but then taking it a step further and recognizing for me, like in me, my this is like being very real and very transparent. Like when I see a guy like that, all I can see is only by the grace of God do I go. It's only because of God's mercy, His love, His like like that I'm not in that gutter. I should be in that gutter. I was on the path of alcoholism like I, I, anything worth doing is worth overdoing. that included drinking for me in my day, and I was very competitive back then also um, i was i've always been I'm still competitive i uh I talk like it's past tense I, uh, <laughs> but so to recognize that when I see somebody there's sympathy, but then the kind hearted is to to recognize. That is not because of anything that I've done because of where I am. God has been merciful to me. He's been gracious to me. Um, if left to my own doing, I would be there. I'm thankful that God moved in such a way that I came to repentance and walk with him because my life today has nothing to do with the choices I've made. It, they have everything to do with me responding to God's leading in my life, which is a big, big difference. I didn't just pick myself up by my bootstraps. I was a broken, broken man. And so this kind-hearted is very similar but but a little bit different. And then we come to humble in spirit which I think hum- humility of spirit and kind-hearted sort of tie closely together. Humility of spirit is easy to understand. It's hard to apply. Humility of spirit is just simply viewing that deep within others are more important than myself. But pride is so often wars with humility. And so to see these sort of these inward characteristics, I see them. If I'm honest before God with myself, to sum up all of you be, at your core, to be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, Humble in spirit. I don't know if I can. So we could be driven to like work really hard to try these, but 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 I don't know if we'll attain success. See, I read this passage and I get terribly convicted, and terribly convicted is a good thing. I don't say that as like it's terrible, like I'm very convicted. And I praise God that I'm convicted because that means that the spirit of God is within me showing me who I really am in, in comparison to who he is. And so when I read this passage, it takes me back to, I think it was in 2000. I'm almost certain it was 2000. I'd come to Christ in 1996 and from 1996 to two, well, till present day, I struggled. But, but, but the struggle I had between 90, 96 and 2000 was super highlighted And things had come to a head in 2000 to where I was so disgusted with myself, with my hypocrisy through a a, a number of circumstances in my life that I pretty much threw in the towel. Uh, I I sort of surrendered to God, but not surrendered like, oh Lord, here's my life, take it, like I'm finally given in to you. It it was a surrendered like I'd, I'd quit the race. Like, I I just can't do it. I'll never forget that night. I was at SEAL Team 3 in my cage. Uh, It sounds, uh, we have cages that are to store our gear. And so it's like a jail cell almost. And I'd gone home that night to the team. or I I was at the team, riddled with guilt and conviction. Looking back, I realized I was a Christian at the time. And the Spirit of God was convicting me to sort of, Make a choice. And I remember crying out to God. I wasn't literally crying, but in my heart, I, I sort of told God, I'm like, I'm done. I can't go on these two roads. I, I, I truly want to be a Christian, but the way I'm living my life, uh, Tuesday, no, Tuesday I had Bible study, but Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, and then Sunday night i go to church, and then Monday night I would start again doing my stuff, and then Tuesday I'd go to church, the hypocrisy in these two roads I was on, it got to the point where I couldn't stay on them anymore. But I didn't know how to get off the road of the world. And so that night I said, Lord, I'm done. I'm, I'm no longer going to call myself a Christian. I, um, it's not that I don't believe, but there's no way I can go down this path and there's no way I can do the Christian road because I keep failing and I remember just like holding my Bible that night, sort of saying, God, I want all of the promises. I want what this book says will happen to those who follow Christ. But it's not working. And I don't know where to go from here. And I'm done. But, but, but I'm done with, uh, if it's true, you've got to just do something because I don't know what to do. But I want it, but I can't. And that seemed to be a huge, huge turning point in my life. It was brokenness. It reminds me of the fruit of the Spirit. See, we we've, oh, some of us have memorized the fruit of the Spirit. I have notes here. I have not. I can get a little bit through. But it says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, um, self-control against these things. There is no law. We, we take the fruit of the spirit and we sort of like a la carte and we think that um, they're sort of attributes of the Christian life that oh I'm doing really good in love I'm doing really good in this other area I oh I'm failed with self-control um, peace I could work on uh, faithfulness meh, you know but see that's not what it's saying these are the it's the fruit of the spirit it's singular it's not Plural, it's not a, they're not even ours. They are the fruit of the Spirit. And if the Spirit is moving within our lives, all of these will manifest themselves. And the key to understanding the fruit of the Spirit goes back to verse 16, which says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the deeds of the flesh. That word walk is a military term for getting in step, that you're walking in sync with the Spirit. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, the Spirit of God dwells in you. You're sealed by Him. He is working and moving through you. But we have this freedom to reject, to, to go against Him, to, to fulfill the deeds of the flesh. What we just read in Ephesians 4.30, it says, Do not grieve the Spirit of God. So when you're a Christian and you're walking according to the flesh, it's literally this picture of God within you is grieved. And so what he tells us in Galatians 5.16 is to get in step with the Spirit. The Spirit is moving and we're saying, Lord, I'm tired of doing it my way. I don't know how this is going to work, but what I want to do is I want to surrender my life to you. I want to see you work. And I think that night at SEAL Team 3 was sort of the beginning of the end for me where I said, I'm done, I don't know how to do this. Take me, I'll just... And I began following his voice, doing what he said, as goofy as it sounded. And then as we get in step with him, kind of like we're in a potato bag race and we're tied up to the Spirit's legs, so we step when he steps, we do what he wants. What happens is, his fruit is be- is it begins to radiate from within us our new nature begins to come forth. Our old nature, our sin life goes by the wayside, but it's still there burning. and It's always ready to catch a fire again. So I think this is what Peter is saying. Be harmonious, be sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing and said, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Says, yield to the Spirit. Allow God to give you that heart transplant. Have your new heart. If you His new heart that He gave you will will create these things within you, and it'll affect your behavior. And as they're going into this 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 period of suffering and significant trials, He says, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult but giving a blessing instead for you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Peter, what are you telling us? When somebody it's insults me, I want to give a zing back. I'm always slow about my zing backs. They come to me like at three in the morning the next day and I think, oh, if I only had said that. So a lot of times I don't give my zings back because I'm just slow. But I have friends that are super quick-witted that I want to be like, you can't get anything past them without a... But, but that's our... You, you want to do evil to me? I'll do evil back to you. You want to insult me? I'll insult you back. But Peter says, no, give a blessing for you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. What is Peter saying? And looking at sort of Peter's life, the early church, and what they were going through, some thoughts came to mind. Looking at Peter, somewhere in Acts, I forget the actual chapter, I kind of, it might be 12, it might be somewhere else, Peter's arrested. Peter and Silas, if my memory is correct, they get arrested unjustly, they're in jail. And for those of you that remember the story, what you'll remember is they... they are not sitting there banging at the gates screaming for their justice screaming for their rights they're free like they've been here unjustly they want all of them what they're doing is they sit there in the middle of the night and they start worshiping they're singing and I think that is crazy like if I was arrested for something that I don't feel was worthy of me being in jail for I would be like fighting for my rights and they're just sitting there having like a worship night And in the midst of the worship night, the jail basically doors swing open. I can't remember if it was an angel or if it was an earthquake, but it's opened up. And the jailer is freaking out because if they get away, he's going to get executed. So he just basically assumes that they're out, so they're gone. And so he's getting ready to take his life. And Peter says, stop, we're still here. We didn't go anywhere. And then the story ends. It says that that jailer and his family all came to faith in Christ. And I don't know that this is what it is, but but in the midst of trials, as we respond in this way that cuts against our nature, and we're, as we're submitting ourselves to God, and we respond this way, the, the bigger picture outside of our own lives is you don't know what God is doing. Another story, thinking of, uh, you know, there's Peter, and then Acts follows Paul, who was known as Saul. And there's Stephen very early on. Stephen was executed for his faith in Christ. When he was there, he gives his sermon, he gives his speech. As he shares with them about who Jesus is, the crowd is just furious to where they like lunge at him and they execute him with, like by stoning him, by throwing uh, rocks or small boulders on him. As he's doing this, he's forgiving them, seeing the heavens open up, and at his death, the very next line is, and Saul was there with their coats at his feet. And I know from reading Paul's writings that the execution of Stephen and his participation, really, I believe, his leading of it stuck with him the whole his whole life. If Paul had anything that he was remorseful for, that... that, that he struggled with was that execution of Stephen. But then how did Stephen's like death, like the words, the, the blessing that Stephen gave to those who were persecuting him? How did that response play into Paul's life? I, I don't know. I don't know how heaven works. Like I don't know, like when you die, like what, do, is there like a, a welcoming party? I mean, I think there probably is, but I mean, do you get the opportunity to go? See the people that had an impact on your life. And and just play with me. Let's just like use our imaginations. I think God gave us imaginations. But like, how would Paul respond going to heaven, seeing Stephen? Would he like fall at Stephen's feet, like with tears? I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I just imagine Stephen saying, Brother, you don't even know. Like it was a blessing for me to be executed by you. And to be able to speak those words, that God would use me in this way to see how Paul was used and that impact in Paul's life. Like from a human perspective, it was really bad for Stephen. I don't know if Stephen was married, but like I'm sure his wife wasn't happy. Mom and dad probably weren't happy. He had kids, probably not happy. All of his friends really sad about his death. But then when you look at the scope of like life, history, human history, that the Christian church Most of our instruction and our teaching comes through the Apostle Paul. Like, what we know about church predominantly comes from the Apostle Paul. I don't know. I'm just trying to make sense of this. But what I see in this, don't return evil for for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing. Instead, you are called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So as we respond, there is blessing for obeying God. Peter then moves on in verse 10. Verses 8 and 9, I believe, are sort of Peter's main instruction to us. For the, most, for the most part, he's focusing on the inside, those five adjectives. Then he says, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing and said, so what's supposed to come out of your mouth because... Those five adjectives of who you, are, who you are on the inside, when you face persecution, trials, tribulations, things don't go your way, you don't respond like a spoiled little child with an outburst of anger. You respond with a blessing. And you're able to respond with a blessing because you have this new nature. You have this new heart within you. And he says, four, the next three verses in your Bible should have different fonts or a footnote or something alerting you that what Peter is saying here is the Old Testament, that he's quoting Scripture. He says, For the one who deserves life to love and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Verse 13, he's going to transition. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Verse 10, 4. Everything that he'd said about those five adjectives, returning evil and insult with a blessing, he's supporting this with the Scripture, 4. And what he's quoting here is a psalm that for us isn't very well known. How many here have memorized Psalm 34? Not me. I'm not raising my hand. That's a question. We don't know this Psalm. Peter's writing, the early church, Psalm 34 was a, was a, was a big Psalm. Like it, it, many commentators sort of speculate that the early church used it as sort of like a worship guide, that it was a hymn, that, so that when Peter quotes this, they would have known the whole. We don't know the whole. But it starts out with for the one who desires life to love and to see good days. Like if we were just to stop there, all of us would say, Yeah. I mean, everybody here wants life, right? Life, good days. Yes, I'm in. That's what I want. And then as I'm jumping up saying, I'm in, I'm in. Life, good days, happiness. Yes my legs get chopped off from under me. He says, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He's like, oh, and I can't help but to think of James. I think in all of the writings in human history, in all languages, I believe James gives the most beautiful picture of the power of the tongue. If you would turn the book just before 1 Peter is James In James chapter 3, verse 1, we read this. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. Amen. For we all stumble in many ways. None of us are perfect. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how a great forest is set aflame by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity, the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race." nor can salt water produce fresh. Coming back to First Peter, Peter says, the one who desires life to love and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. I see this and I think I want that. I'm out. <laughs> I can't do it. Our tongues are so powerful. James makes this, it's like the most powerful. If you can contain your tongue, then you're the most disciplined person in the whole world. So far, it's seeming pretty discouraging looking at this, quite frankly. He goes on to say, uh, he must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So if we read this not knowing Psalm 34, it's very easy to spin this in a way that it wasn't intended and Peter didn't intend to write it. I'd ask you to turn with me to Psalm 34. I want to look at Psalm 34 really quickly so that we can get a better understanding of what is being said here. So in Psalm 34, as you get there, I hear pages turning. Psalm 34 is 22 verses long. It is a beautiful psalm. Um, okay, if you're there, if you'll look down to verses 12 through 16, 12 through 16 are the verses that Peter is quoting from. Now, if you were to, this is for a homework assignment for you to do. If you were to go to 1 Peter, um, verses 10, 11 12 read them word for word and compare them to what is said here you're going to find that, that the message is the same but the wording is very different like well, I thought he's quoting this how is it different the text that we have before us in our Old Testament is a direct translation of the Hebrew scriptures the text that the early church was using was the Septuagint which was a Greek translation of of the Hebrew Bible. So often when you read a quotation in the New Testament that's referring to the Old Testament, and you look in your Old Testament to get the context and the wording, you're like, how did that, like that doesn't look word for word. Well, the reason is, is it's a couple. Either they're quoting from memory or they're quoting the Septuagint, and we have uh, the translation from the Hebrew Scriptures, which is slightly different. It'd be like quoting from the NIV to the New King James or something like that. Same message, um, just different words. So as we look at Psalm 34, the introduction is important. The very first thing that we see is that it's a Psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. King Saul, before he got, or King King David, before he took the throne, had a crazy life. He was a guy who had been anointed by God to be the next king of Israel. Saul was still the king. And Saul was a crazy man. This is a story about Abimelech. All of these stories, you read David's life, and he was on the run half the time. Everybody's trying to kill him. Everybody's trying to harm him. He continues to run, to run, to run in situations where he had the opportunity to take the life of King Saul. What did he do? He didn't. He cut the edge of the robe to show him, I could have taken your life. But because you are God's anointed king, I am submitting to you. I am not going to take your life. And when we start looking at the life of David and we start looking at the early church, man, the similarities. What we just read about submitting to the authorities, looking at David's life, how it played out, gives me goosebumps. And so here, David, all of Psalm 31, I think it became so special to the early church is because those who are suffering true persecution, these words are going to resonate with you in a way Um that we who live comfortable lives just won't be able to understand. And so David on the run, look how he starts. Beautiful. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come you children, listen to me; I will teach you the fear of the Lord. I want to pause here. So so up to this point, what do we see? We see David's close close intimate relationship with God. David's going through all of these terrible things, but because of his relationship, his trust in the Lord All he's doing is speaking praise to God, honoring him, praising him, walking with him. He ends the first section with, come you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, we're told, is the beginning of wisdom. So he's trying to draw his readers, those who listen to this, come to the Lord. Come into a relationship with him, praise him. If you keep your eyes on the Lord and you fear him, Your external circumstances aren't going to be a big deal because ultimately you know that God's in control. And so from that point, which Peter understands, and Peter, who is in relationship, understands that all these qualities that he's describing are from within, not externals that we're trying to fake. Then David continues, who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil. And your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants. And none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So you can head back to 1 Peter. Now looking at the whole of this psalm, it sort of changes the dy- the dynamic of how we understand what's being said here. I got I'm in Mark, I got to get back to the right book here. So when he says, "Sum up all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil." and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, and he's going to move into suffering. For the church that was enduring serious persecution, being executed for their faith, they knew exactly what Peter was saying. In essence, what's being said is: you have this relationship with the Creator. He's called us to live a certain way, to to be a certain way. And as we have the Spirit of God within us, we become like Him. We imitate Him. Ephesians five one says, "Be imitators of Christ." There's crab, right? And then there's imitation crab. Crab is really good. Imitation crab is pretty good, but it's different. Christ is, well, I don't want to say Christ is a crab. <laughs> this is breaking down on me. But, but Christ is Christ. We in the Spirit are trying to imita- imitate Him. We're not perfect. But through His Spirit, we take on certain qualities. But life was getting hard as they're walking with Him and persecution's coming and trials are coming. It would be easy to quit the road to say, I don't want to do this anymore. And if we look at the whole of Psalm 34, we see that there's great relationship and it ends with there's great hope. Keep walking with God. Keep serving Him. Keep honoring Him with your lives because in the end, He's going to resolve everything. And so to end this, if you're here and you're not a Christian, please don't hear this and think that what God wants from you is stop drinking, stop smoking, stop gambling, stop combing your hair that way, tuck in your shirt. What, what he wants is you to have eternal life in Christ. It's not about good works. There is nothing you can do to even the score with God. We stand condemned in our sin. As we look at Peter, we see that Christ paid it all. And he's offering you life. And so if you're not a Christian, the one like what you need to know is that Jesus loves you and he wants to give you life in him and it's simply believing. For those of us who have trusted in Christ, what Peter is writing is that in Christ we're new creatures. we have a new way of thinking, a new heart. We no longer live for ourselves. And whatever you're going through, good, bad, so-so, like you're a part of something greater. And your life isn't just about you. And so Christ has paid it all. We have life in Him. But how we live our life matters. God has called us to, to be on mission, to see the world through His eyes, to see individuals as those for whom Christ has died, and that our lives, how we live, how we matter, we reflect the gospel in everything. And so as you, as we end, and if there's anything, I would just encourage all of us to really look at this list, to examine our hearts, to ask God to continue the work that He's doing. Um, Ephesians 5.10 says something really encouraging. It says... Um, it talks about learning this whole, what it means to follow after Christ. So it's a process. This is, we are to be growing in our relationship with him. And so Father, I do thank you um, for this day. I, I thank you for this challenging text. Lord, I thank you for conviction. Um, Lord, as I examine uh, my own heart and, and who I am within. I'm thankful, Lord, for the the work that you've started. Lord, I pray for each of us that um, whether we've known you for one day or we've known you for 50 years, I, I pray that we would not grow content in our life with you. I mean, in our life and our progress with you. Um, of course, we're content with you and our relationship, but Lord, we pray that you would help us um, to truly um, examine our hearts, Lord. That we would get in step with you, Lord, Father. In areas that we're convicted about our views, our understandings, we we pray, Lord, that you would take that from us, that you would change us, Lord. Give us your eyes, give us your heart, Lord. May we be all of these things, Father. Give us thankful hearts. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Christ's good name.